Please turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. <clears throat> Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word, and we pray that you would help us, give us receptive hearts. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our mind and our heart, that we might hear. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We were talking about it Wednesday night at Bible study. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior came that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. It's a, it's a, it's a nursery rhyme that many of us learn. I think one of my children, I can't remember which one, used to refer to it as the sycamore tree, uh, without saying the R and the E at the end, but sycamore. Um, but we all learned those, uh, we all learned, I think, that along with various other, uh, cute little nursery rhymes or, or, or yeah, nursery rhymes, uh, nursery rhymes we learned, uh, in Sunday school or in nursery. Uh, we could all remember a situation like that. Uh, we can remember Zacchaeus and, and what transpired and, and how he climbed up in a tree. But uh, in, in order to make this old story that we're quite familiar with fresh and new, my hope is that we can expound a little bit, explain, just look at it within its context and understand precisely, well, at least in some measure, what, uh, what God in his Wisdom has intended for us to understand from this passage this morning. I think at least just to get us started to whet our appetite, at least in some small way, this passage will answer for us, at least in some small part, not exhaustively for there is more to say, but at least in some small part, it will answer at least how can we know that we are a Christian? What does a transformed life look like? What does it look like for us to indeed say that, well, that person uh, appears to be a genuine Christian? Uh, we will go through a period of time when uh, each year we examine individuals as a session for membership in the church. What are we looking for 
indeed when we invite folk to become members of the church, when we're examining them for membership, when they come before the session, say, I'd like to be a member of the church. We're looking for things that fit precisely within the framework of this very passage this morning. So I think this passage answers for us a question of how we can know that we are indeed a Christian. I want to look at uh, at, at just a bit of context. <clears throat> you remember in Luke chapter 15 that the Lord said in verses 3 through 7 and in verse 10 that all heaven rejoices over one sheep, one sheep that has been found, one sinner that has been committed who's committed their life to Jesus Christ, one sinner who has been saved from God's wrath, that all heaven rejoices over one sinner. We also remember just a little bit ago that there was a a recounting of an interaction that Jesus had uh, with a very rich man, a very, very rich man who had become, uh, uh, who who came to Jesus the rich young ruler in chapter 18, who came asking, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, sell all you have, and then come and follow me. Well, that man departed with great sadness in his heart because he was a very rich man and he loved his wealth. Well, think about that man when we think of wee little Zacchaeus. I don't know about you, but I'm not so impressed by wee little Zacchaeus, at least on the outside. But when I consider him in light of this passage, as well as Luke chapter 18 and the rich young ruler, and the wealth and the worth of knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, I see Zacchaeus as far more of a godly man in so many ways, far bigger than his physical stature. Well, Jesus is pressing toward his final entry into Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem. We know he has had an earlier ministry there. He has cleansed the temple. He has done various things. He has shown his zeal for the house of his father. We know that he was there as a boy, expounding the scriptures, as it were, and delighting in the word of God when his parents lost him when he was a young, young boy. He has been there before, but this will be his final entry into Jerusalem. It will will be a triumphal entry. Uh, It's weighing heavily on his heart. What what will take place there? Uh, The betrayal uh, by Judas, uh, his crucifixion, his suffering and endurance of the shame of the cross. If anything, it makes us love Jesus all the more when we know that he is, he is going to interact with Zacchaeus and, and show concern for this one little tiny man there up in the tree when he has such a crushing weight of what is about to take place still descending upon him. It makes Jesus all the more beautiful. There have been a number of, of, of shocking moments in the last few chapters where Jesus has, has taken note of or has taught a lesson about Uh, insignificant or rejected persons. You remember, Zacchaeus is one of them, but but also the blind beggar that everyone told to shut up. And everyone said, be quiet, with with great vehemence, they said it. And they were grumbling, as it were, that he was complaining, and crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. You remember. And the people told him to be quiet. 
Or how about the ten lepers who were crying out, pleading with God, one of whom was a Samaritan, and only he was the one who returned and gave thanks. How about that persistent widow in the story of Jesus speaking about the persistent widow who would complain, who would make her case made known to the judge until finally he was so exasperated with her that he decided that she would he would respond to her need. And of course there is the tax collector who goes in with the Pharisee and they are both before the Lord praying, the tax collector praying, the Pharisee not really praying, beating his chest, the tax collector, and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus takes note of those who are in need. He takes note of those who are insignificant and rejected by society. Zacchaeus' name means pure and innocent, but this man is not. At this point yet, uh, he starts out the story corrupt and very corruptible. He ends the story in a matter of a few verses pure, innocent, in Christ alone. Because of Christ alone. Well, he is a chief tax collector, and we only meet one in the Bible, and that's Zacchaeus. There's no other chief tax collector. There are other tax collectors. Matthew, who is following Jesus, is in fact one of the tax collectors. But Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, meaning he he not only abuses the people, he abuses the tax collectors. He, he defrauds the tax collectors of their ill-gotten gain. He's a traitor, and he's a corrupt person. He goes far beyond what is required of him, that he might enrich himself at the expense of the people and the trade persons. More than that, he's a traitor because he works for those who are in positions of strength and of power within the Roman government. This is, Jericho is a significant point of entry. If you want to get to Jerusalem from the eastern trade routes, You have to do it through Jericho, unless you did a ship, which was highly unusual in that time. But if you were coming from the east, you had to do it through Jericho, through the mountains. You remember when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, what did they have to do first? Defeat Jericho. It was right in the way, and it was on the way to Jerusalem. Well, he was positioned at the most influential point, and is a significant point. Tax collectors were not permitted to be judges because they were untrustworthy persons. And of course, he was untrustworthy as well. The very fact that he tells Jesus, whomever I have defrauded, if I have defrauded them, I'm going to return fourfold. It says that indeed he he was a fraud. He was someone who took advantage. He was a tax man who went far beyond what was required, whereas if you owed a 10% tax on your income, he would take 20 to 25%, and the extra 15% went into his own pocket. He's a curious individual that we don't make an awful lot out of. We, 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 We know him as the nursery rhyme subject, but in Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, they have a... They have a, a Zacchaeus Sunday, and it's an unusual thing, and it's it's tied with Lent, and it's called Zacchaeus Sunday, and it's involved in the Paschal cycle. And there are two reasons for why they have a Zacchaeus Sunday. It's because Zacchaeus came down from the tree in response to Jesus' call. 
And so they see something significant in Jesus' call, in his divine call to humility. And secondly, they see his repentance and they take note of that. And we'll take note of that today as well. Zacchaeus stands in stark contrast to that rich young ruler of Luke chapter 18 because what does he do without even Jesus saying anything? He immediately says, Lord, I want you to take note of this. I need to tell you this and to commit myself to this very behavior. I'm going to return half of my income to the poor and I'm going to return up to four times to whomever I have defrauded. It's a very big difference between he and the rich young ruler who, when Jesus said, sell all that you have and come and follow me, departed in sadness because he was a rich man who loved his riches. The difference between those two men, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, is simply this. Zacchaeus is prompted by the Spirit of God in whom a work of regeneration has begun And he has true and saving faith, whereas this rich young ruler had none. He was not a believer in Christ. He went away with sadness, but he did not love Christ. But Zacchaeus, by the time we reach the end of the story, we see he loved Christ. Now, he was he was he had the dubious pleasure of being in a world that had no Internet, no television, no social media, Only word of mouth. And he's curious about Jesus. He's curious about why who he is who he is and what he what what he's doing and how he speaks and how he teaches. And it's only by word of mouth and the buzz that Jesus creates that in fact he is drawn. But there's something more, because many others have been drawn into his presence. Many, many others have been drawn to come and see Jesus, but they are not believers. In fact, there are some within our own present story this morning who grumble because Jesus has gone in to have lunch with and to stay over in this man's house because he's a sinner. You see, there are plenty of people around around Jesus that are merely curious or who have come to him because they want bread. They want their physical needs met. They want a healing, but they have no intention of believing. This man's different. He's not like the rich young ruler who seemed compelled in so many ways. Men that uh, uh, The kind of man that you and I, if we were looking at Zacchaeus and we're looking at the rich young ruler whose life was so chaste, so appear, appearing to be godly on the outside, and Zacchaeus, who was a, a known perpetrator of fraud, who's short even. Who likes a short person? From a worldly human perspective, we would say, surely the rich young ruler is worthy of being saved. The short man on the right who gets up into the tree who's a fraud, you should ignore him altogether. But there's something that's working in him. There is a secret, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God in Zacchaeus' heart that has drawn him that day to come and see Jesus Christ, to be curious about the Lord. Well, no internet, no television, so what do you do? You go. And you go out into the street, and you line the side of the street where you know the individual is going to come in, and there he is. And first, he goes with the crowds, but uh, when you're 
When you're short, you can't see above the crowd, so all you see are, are backs and chests. That's all you see. And so there he is, and people are above him, and uh, he cannot see. He's perhaps jumping. He, he can't quite see what he wants to see. And so he figures the best means for me to be able to see Jesus is to run up the road just a little bit and climb up into that sycamore tree. Now, there are different sycamore trees, and I looked at one the other day, and I thought this last week, I don't know if I could climb that thing because there's nowhere to climb up on that sycamore tree. We have sycamores around our area. But there are different sycamore trees, too, that are of a flowering nature, that are a little bit lower to the ground. Well, Maybe he only needed about three feet, so he steps up onto a branch, and there he is. He's holding on, and he's looking, and he sees Jesus. And as Jesus is walking by, he's, he's thinking, wow, there he is. I want to hear him. I want to listen to what he has to say. What's so special about Jesus? Why am I here? And Jesus immediately turns his face and looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I must stay in your home and have lodging this evening. And curiously, within the text, it says in the Greek that he came down the tree with rejoicing. He came down the tree from whatever height it was with rejoicing in his heart. Now, if I'm curious and only curious about someone, I don't know that I'd be filled with joy. I'd be thankful. I'd be happy. I'd I'd be excited. But he's filled with joy. I think he's come down the tree a believer. If he isn't then, he most assuredly is when he says, Lord, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. Because no one says, Lord... unless they are prompted by the Holy Spirit of God to do so, unless they have been convinced in their own heart. Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Do you understand what Romans 10 says there? If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you are saved. And Paul uses the language of being saved, of being justified, and of never being ashamed. It's extraordinary language. Now some might abuse this text and say, you see, what happens is, He doesn't believe, and he's not a believer, and he comes to the end of the story, and finally he he then says, Lord, I'm going to give everything, I'm going to give half of what I own, and then I'm going to give four times as much to the defraud people. And what, 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 what they want to say is that then Jesus says in response, in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And they're saying that, you see, what happened is, once he did a work of righteousness, then Jesus saved his soul. I would put to you that he did that work of righteousness only after he was redeemed and converted in the inner man. 
I think he came down from that tree with joy and with rejoicing because Jesus at that point was his Lord and Savior. He had believed. He was saved. At first, he's only curious, but under the pressing and prompting of the Holy Spirit, his heart is regenerated through that secret, sovereign work of the Spirit of God. He's converted. Uh, I, I believe he's converted when he comes down out of that tree with rejoicing. He may have been converted even before Jesus got there, but one way or the other, this is a converted man because when Jesus calls him, he is rejoicing before the Lord. Most assuredly, when he says in verse 9 or verse uh, 7 or 8, Lord, half of my possessions I will give, there's a converted man, and I'm going to explain why. He's not converted by his works but rather he is converted unto and for good works and only by the Holy Spirit of God. He calls Jesus Lord, that word kurion or kurios, Lord. Something has transformed this man. He acknowledges Jesus as Lord and a new principle is evident in him. He is no longer in love with his money. He's no longer in service to what he owns And now he loves and he serves the Savior. That's so crystal clear, is it not? Effectual calling, we are told in the Westminster Confession of Faith, is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery and enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. Zacchaeus, when he came down from the tree, is freely embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the very next verse, he says, Lord... Lord. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. And when one becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, and when one is converted, we submit immediately to the law of God, to the moral law of God. Immediately through a progressive transformation into the image of Jesus Christ, there's a change in behavior. There's a a, a desire for repentance, an immediate response of repentance. It's like if you were to save someone from a burning car wreck. Wouldn't their immediate and automatic response would be, thank you, thank you? Well, the believer, when they are saved, immediately responds, I repent. I repent of my sins. I repudiate all of it. I want to live for Jesus Christ. And this is what repentance involves. It involves restitution, restoration of what is stolen, repairing of broken relationships, Humble acknowledgement of wrongs done. Restitution where it is possible. Restoration of a good name that has been stained. Making things right with our neighbors. Correcting bad behavior. And humbly acknowledging where we have sinned against others. Notice the progression. He has not, say, he has not gained salvation by his good works. First, he confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Then the genuineness of his faith and conversion are shown in his works. His faith has saved him by the grace of God, but his faith now immediately demonstrates that he is saved. And it immediately begins to bear fruit. 
Do you understand how that works, Christian? If you've believed in Jesus Christ, if you can confess with your lips and truly believe it in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you're saved, you're justified. And then immediately, you respond with repentance and bearing fruit. If you have any question about that, read Ezekiel 36 and see what the Lord does there. When he says, I will sprinkle clean water on your heart and I will clean you of your uncleanliness. And then I will cause you to walk in my ways. I have ordained good works that you should walk in them. We make a miscalculation when we put good works before salvation. Good works then will necessitate salvation, will earn salvation. That's not, in fact, the way the Bible ever represents it. Rather, it always represents it as the Holy Spirit of God will secretly, sovereignly change a a cold and hard, stony heart into a soft, pliable heart, making us willing, able to believe, and then we trusting and believing and then responding in repentance is the first active indication of our salvation and of grace operating within our heart. We would never say, we would never say that works are not necessary. They are indeed necessary for assurance. They are necessary to glorify God. They are are necessary to demonstrate the newness of life in which we walk. But have no fear because God the Holy Spirit, who has secretly and sovereignly changed your heart and converted and redeemed you, will also cause you to walk in a way that is pleasing in God's sight. He is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Zacchaeus believes. Let's trace it back from the beginning. Zacchaeus' name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life long, long before the world was created. And then... Zacchaeus came into this world and lived like a pagan man, but he had an outward religiosity and he was involved in a religious system. He was a Jew amongst the Jews. But he was not a true son of Abraham because he didn't believe. And then one day the Holy Spirit worked secretly and sovereignly in his heart and replaced his heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And curiously he was drawn to this person, Jesus. And then he believed at some point between climbing into that tree and taking him into his house and sitting down for dinner. At some point he believed faith became operative. This gracious gift of faith, this enabled faith began to work. And it came together with its evangelical sister, repentance. That faith bore fruit and he repented of his sin And he began to follow the Lord, didn't he? I think at least in some way this sermon is about a number of things, at least beginning with, you need Jesus. You and I, we need Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus. And not on ourselves nor our own works, 
We are not to put our trust in this hopeful possibility of what may occur one day. We need to this day, as Zacchaeus did, own that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe and be saved. We must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we do, we will be justified. We will be saved And we may have the absolute assurance that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We can have the absolute certainty, too, that we will walk in a way that is pleasing to God because God the Holy Spirit will come to live within our heart and He will cause us to walk in God's way and no longer according to the dictates of our own mind and affections, but rather in a way that is pleasing to God. I think further there is application here. You need Jesus more than money. You need Jesus more than money. Are we convinced of that? I need Jesus more than money. I need to know Christ and to walk in Christ more than I need money. There are all sorts of implications for us. When, when we're working more than we should and we neglect the weightier matters of service and obedience and of imparting God's truth to our families, to our children, to our own heart, to our wives, to, to our loved ones, to our fellow believers here in the body of Christ, and we have no time for service, there's something wrong, dear friend. You're miscalculating. You need Jesus more than you need your money. You need Jesus more than you need your time. You need Jesus more than you need your own self-entertainment and rest. Talking with Lena before the service about having a 9 a.m. meeting on a Sunday morning to talk about evangelism, I said, do you think that's a little too early? And she says, we used to have Sunday school at 9 a.m. Come on. I agree. We get up at work, we get up and go to work for eight, don't we? Typically, most people do. Seven, eight, six. We need Jesus more than we need money, more than we need time. We've been working more than we should. We've been neglecting to fulfill our calling as brothers and sisters in the Lord, bearing the weight of ministry in the church. I don't think this church has ever required anything of anyone or has gone above and beyond and expected far too much of any one person. But when ministry and ordinary tasks on Sunday mornings devolve more and more upon the shoulders of fewer and fewer, there's a problem. There's a miscalculation of what we most need. When you could be here on Sunday morning rather than getting an extra 15 minutes of sleep, and you could be helping to set things up and bring out the sign, and you could be helping John and Kyle to set up and prepare this this place for worship service, turning on the lights and gathering up the hymnals. When it's a chore to get up just a few minutes early and to be on time, When my excuse for not serving the Lord is busyness, I'm just too busy to do this. I just don't have enough hours in the day. You've seriously and sadly miscalculated, saying in your heart without words, I need time, I need money, I need rest more than I need Jesus. 
Zacchaeus was a very rich man. And when Jesus came into his home and Jesus came into his heart and his heart was changed and now made tender and soft, his immediate response was, I don't want all that I have. I want to make this right. I want to repent. I understand that following Jesus Christ demands my all. And so he says, Lord, I'm going to give back half of what I have. I'm going to give it to the poor. Because I know your heart beats for the poor. And I know your heart beats for holiness. And therefore, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to back, go, go back to that Exodus chapter that Joshua read in this service earlier. And I'm going to apply that principle here in my life. I don't have to legally, but I'm going to. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to return it fourfold. Zacchaeus has not just halved his income. He has, he has decreased it by at least 80%. And yet we complain because we just don't have enough time an extra hour or two a week in some way to serve the Lord? An extra few minutes? In fact, an extra few minutes on the Lord's day? An extra hour to come together on Sunday evening to pray? Oh, it's far, far too much to get out of bed and to come and to prepare myself in the Lord on Sundays to come and pray with the women at the back of the church for 15, 20 minutes. I love that this church is wonderfully responsive to needs, but dear friends, if, if, do we not need to hear that on occasion? A challenge to our, our presumptions, a challenge to our priorities. If we need Jesus more than we need money, as Zacchaeus demonstrates for us in this passage today, then doesn't that have an implication for me with regard to how many work hours I allow my job to take from me and to take from my home and to take from my children? Doesn't it mean that I need to submit my my intentions to, to rise up in the working world and to be all that? Don't I need a decrease in all that and a little bit more of an increase in being a godly man? A godly husband, a godly father, a godly mother. The day will come when your children are gone from your home and you'll be left with everything that you've accumulated. What will calm your soul as you consider their spiritual state as they enter into a wicked world? I have imparted everything that God has commanded me to impart to my children. Can you say that? I have shown them an example of a man of God, of a woman of God who loves the Lord more than anything. Can you say that? None of us will do it perfectly, but should we not be striving, laboring, praying over this, and continuously examining and re-examining our priorities to make certain that even though this world desires to catch us up and, and, and to, to push us into the urgency of living in a world in an ungodly way, we need to take a breath on occasion and to say, I am a child of God. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I need Jesus more than anything.
This wonderful statement in the passage is, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Don't we hear in that statement something of the heart of Jesus Christ? He came to seek and save that which is lost. That's you. That's me. Some of us don't know a day when we haven't owned Jesus Christ as our Savior. Since the earliest days, we've always known ourselves to be sinners and have been relying upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. But some of us know a day when we were not believers and we didn't have Christ. Hopefully all of us know that Christ has come into this world to seek and to save that which is his. You and me, lost sinners, lost sheep. His heart beats for lost sheep, and he will not lose one. Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was, didn't he? He didn't meet him at a previous time. He didn't he's just he's just his creator. And he knows all men and all women and all things. He knows every territory, he knows every planet, every star. He knows every comet. He knows every molecule in this universe. It all belongs to him. But specially, extraordinarily, he knows his sheep. And his sheep hear his voice. He is the great shepherd. My dear friend, as we conclude, how can you be certain that you are a Christian today? How do you know? Well, If you see the absolute beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he does and how he showed mercy to Zacchaeus, little wee Zacchaeus, if you see his magnificent kindness, his, his tender mercy, and you love him all the more for, for it, and your heart is stirred in affections for him because he has loved this man, Is that not evidence? Is that not fruit-bearing, showing that, yes, you love the Lord Jesus? And the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is awash in you. Do you love his ways? Do you delight in serving him? Is he altogether beautiful to you when you think about him? It doesn't mean that every moment you're just rapturously singing with tears rolling down your face, but rather that as you think about Christ, Your heart is warmed. You love him. And even when your heart betrays you and your feelings are not there, you still know in your heart of hearts and in your mind you can reason truly, yes, I do love the Lord Jesus. There is nowhere else for me to go. I have no other hope than this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come to take away my sins. You wonder, how can I be certain that I'm a Christian today? Is there any more person more beautiful? Is there any other person more beautiful than Jesus? His self-sacrifice, his death on the cross, his marred and bloodied appearance there hung for you even though the heavy burden of what he would undergo in suffering and betrayal and crucifixion, as he cries out for Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down. You need, you need to come down immediately. I need to stay in your home. 
Isn't there something altogether beautiful about his concern for wandering sheep? Do you feel his concern for you as a wandering sheep this morning? His heart beats for you. Even though oftentimes we are cold-hearted, we can talk about the sacrifice of Christ in, in an esoteric and in a sort of unreal way. But should we not weep? Lord Jesus did this for me. For me. My, my name. My need. His heart beats for me. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you love his ways? Do you delight in serving him? If you don't, turn to the Lord Jesus and ask his forgiveness. Repent of your sin and teach yourself. Speak to your heart. Preach to your soul. The ways of the Lord Jesus Christ and things of God and his word make more sense than anything this dark world could ever offer. Nothing in this world makes sense, but the word of God is tried, is true. Is Jesus everything to you? Has he changed your life? You're no longer living for what you used to live for. You have a new identity in him. Whereas you used to live for yourself, now is there a guiding principle that you want to live for him and please him? You don't know everything about what it means to live the Christian life, but but you want to do what's pleasing to him. You love what he loves in an increasing sort of way. If you haven't believed in Christ and yet you see how beautiful he is in the salvation of his people, why do you delay? You can have the joy of Zacchaeus who came down from that tree. Jesus makes no less audible of a call to you this very day through through my words and this word this morning in As we have read his word, Jesus is calling to you to come unto him and be saved. Will you hear his voice? Will you respond to him? Will you respond to that secret, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that compels you to come? You can't merely be curious with Christ. You must believe. You must cast yourself upon him. Jesus is looking for you, and he knows you by name. How do we know that Zacchaeus was a believer? His repentance. His joy. We've talked about joy, but he repented. There's a curious story. In 1922 and 1923 in Northern Ireland, there was a, there was a season of refreshing in the things of God. There was a, a time of great revival. <clears throat> Something we ought to be praying for, dear friends. There was a, a shipyard there, Harland and Wolf, and my understanding it's still there in Northern Ireland in Belfast. It's a shipyard company. It's that company that built the Titanic. And uh, in 22, 1922 to 1923, there was a revival, and there was a it was a short-term revival. It lasted about a year. It, it was one particular Presbyterian minister who was preaching, 
uh, and he was blessed. God blessed him in an extraordinary way for the period of just one year. Hundreds of thousands of people were converted. You can read about it in the daily press of the time. It's, it's a known, visible, clear phenomenon. There were many shipyard workers who came to Christ who were converted. Uh, in fact, I have a dear friend in the Lord who had met one of these men. There were many, many shipyard workers who were converted in that summer of 1922. They began to bring back to the shipyard things that they had stolen. It was an extraordinary time. And hundreds of thousands were coming to faith in Jesus Christ through this one man's preaching. And they began to bring back stuff that they had stolen. It was one particular evidence of the genuineness of this revival that men and women, their hearts were pricked by God, and without prompting, they began, other than the Holy Spirit, they began to bring back what they had stolen over the years. The shipyard had to build a room a building to house all the stuff that they were bringing back. And then eventually they had to write there on the wall and they had to put up a notice to tell the workers to stop bringing back the stuff that they had stolen over the years because they had no more room for it. You can go to a museum and you can see that very notice today. You see, when you're converted, when you become a believer... That faith bears fruit. That faith will inevitably bear fruit. It cannot but bear fruit. And if it doesn't bear fruit, it's not faith. But if there is faith, there is a fruit-bearingness that comes from it. And the immediate fruit of a changed heart of genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ is repentance. Falling on our face before God, an acknowledgement of wrongs done, a seeking of restitution, of doing restitution if we can, but not the least of which is at least to own our sin and confess it to God. Zacchaeus did it. Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century preacher, writer, professor, he led the Free Church of Scotland. And in 1843, he preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And basically, the argument he makes in this, in this sermon is simply this. You cannot fight sin out of the power of your own will. Even though we might want to, and we think that if we just drum, enough, drum up enough power of the will, if we just have enough willpower, we can somehow deliver ourselves from sin. Now, you might be able to keep a good diet and lose some weight, and you might be able to set a new leaf and a new pa- or turn over a new leaf and, and institute a new pattern of life for the rest of your life, but you can't stop sin by turning over a new leaf. You need the power of God. And if the power of God is at work in you, and it's not just the power of your own will, only a heart set on God, set on Christ, empowered by, converted by the power of the gospel, only that kind of a person and that kind of a sovereign work of God can enable a person to be freed from sin. What does Peter say in his first chapter of his first epistle? All things pertaining to godliness have been granted to God's people. All things. If you would be freed from sin, if you would truly repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, if you would bear 
fruit in keeping with repentance, as Paul says, if you would show that you are a child of God and turn from your sins in utter, utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit and his secret, glorious, sovereign work. May God work repentance in us continually until he comes again. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your secret, sovereign work in our hearts. We delight in that reality. We ask that you would continue to secretly, sovereignly work in our hearts. Make us more willing to repent and turn away from our sins. Teach us through Zacchaeus and his ministry that conversion results in faith and repentance. We pray, O God, that you would help us, that we might lead a life of working faith and ongoing repentance. We thank you for Zacchaeus who demonstrated that he needed Jesus more than he needed his money. And isn't that true? We are an eternal soul and money will not minister to our soul. Jesus can save our soul. Through his blood and sacrifice, we are saved. We are justified by believing in him. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for the instrument of faith. We come with nothing in our hands. We would not look to any work of our own, but we look to the work of Christ in full satisfaction of your law's demands. We are justified in Christ through faith. We give thanks. We ask, Lord, this morning that all those who have admired Jesus, who have delighted in Jesus, who can finally and fully today say, Jesus is Lord. Believing that in their mind and heart. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give them joy, a newfound joy in Jesus Christ, a new identity in Christ Jesus. Grant them to know what it is to have an inner joy that cannot be put out and then help that faith that justification to bear fruit in a life that is changed that is no longer the same that is no longer content with cursing no longer content with ungodly patterns of behavior that is no longer content with ungodliness but now delights in doing what is pleasing to God oh Lord we ask that you would do this for Jesus sake We ask that you would glorify him in the salvation of sinners. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.